Future of Finance podcast, where finance finds its future. Hello, I'm Dominic Cobson, co-founder of Future of Finance. My guest today is Anthony Woolley, Head of Business Development at Onera, an institutional grade blockchain network for security tokens, or what some prefer to call digital securities. Anthony is also co-chair of the Global Digital Finance Private Markets Digitization Steering Group, a group of banks, financial market infrastructures, technology vendors, and fintechs whose aim is to enable the interoperability or portability of security tokens between different blockchain networks. And it's the work of that group which is the subject of our conversation today, Fin P2P. Thank you, John. Hello, Anthony. Yeah. Good morning. Yeah, we're pleased to talk to you this morning. Now, uh, let's get to the heart of this. Uh, lack of interoperability between different blockchain networks is clearly a problem which has emerged. Is that the problem which Fin P2P is going to solve? Um, it does solve it, but in the context of digital securities. Um, so over the last few years, I think there's been many initiatives that have tried to tackle the problem of blockchain and more broader, broadly distributed ledger technology interoperability. And I think they have struggled somewhat. Um, if you approach the problem down at the technology layer, uh, you, you quickly run into uh, many issues. How do you connect these networks many to many? How do you do atomic transfer of, of assets between those networks, all of these technical things? Um, we approached the problem in a different way. We, we elevated a pro- the problem above uh, the blockchain and DLT networks uh, to produce a routing layer for digital securities. So FinP2P as a protocol understands what a digital security is uh, and what it means to transfer ownership, uh, make payment and handle custody of those securities. Uh, And I think by taking that approach, focusing on that functional domain, we we very much tackle that problem. But tell me, if, if, if blockchain networks pursue different technical solutions, shall we say, to the, the question of atomic settlement. How does uh, providing that routing layer solve that problem if you want to purchase uh, a digital asset on one network and then settle it on another? So fundamentally, uh, FinP2P can connect different institutions, different marketplaces, uh, different blockchain and DLT technologies. And it's a routing network. So if you imagine you have a DLT marketplace with assets uh, held on that, that network, uh, what, DL, what FinP2P enables you to do is extend access to that asset to uh, investors on other uh, venues and marketplaces. Uh, when they transact in the digital security, the record of ownership is updated where that security uh, sits. So we're updating record of ownership of securities, not moving those securities uh, physically forms the better word between those DLT networks. So the technical differences can persist without interrupting interoperability, right? Correct. We're, we're, we're totally focused on digital securities solving the distribution problem so that potentially any asset, whatever uh, venue it's on, can potentially be distributed to any suitable accredited investor globally. Now, I can see that interoperability, that portability is clearly a benefit. Are there any other benefits from solving the problem? Um, this, this, I mean, this is fundamental. Solving this distribution problem is really opening up institutional adoption of digital securities. 
you know, we've, we've had a lot happening, as, as you call it, with security tokens and then coming from an institutional background or prefer the term uh, digital securities. Um, and that institutional adoption uh, has really not been there. You've had public blockchain servicing uh, the, the issuance of securities to retail investors. Um, once you can solve the distribution problem in the context of uh, regulated uh, institutional network for institutional investors, uh, that really opens up the, the, the potential of, of, of this technology. Uh, and we very much focused that on uh, private securities, uh, where this is really the world's biggest offline market, as opposed to the uh, public markets, which are actually smaller, um, but have a tremendous amount of liquidity. Uh, the private markets are, are offline, and um, this delivers many benefits across that ecosystem of the private markets. And the beneficiaries, issuers get access to a different type of investor, investors get access to a different type of asset. Who, who's going to enjoy these benefits? Yeah, very much so. I mean, the private markets at the moment are offline. Um, you know, if you have a, an issuance uh, around, say, a private company, uh, they may talk to no more than maximum 30, 40 investors, if, if that. Um, there are uh, assets uh, all over the world um, looking for investors. There are investors all over the world looking for access uh, to those assets. And at the moment, these have been locked up in... Uh, fairly, you know, self-contained, isolated, monolithic um, marketplaces in different jurisdictions. There has been a proliferation of private marketplaces, but with a lot of friction, and they've been successful in spite of a lot of that friction. Um, this really opens it up so that, um, and this benefits all of the stakeholders in this ecosystem. So uh, it benefits the assets looking for investors, it benefits the institution, bringing the assets to that marketplace. Uh, it benefits the buy side and the wealth managers bringing investors um, to that network and to the many service providers that can uh, come into that whole thin P2P ecosystem, whether that's companies providing digital custody, transfer agency, uh, settlement solutions, payment solutions. And um, so it's really driving a new ecosystem that can take private markets online. Mm -hmm. Now, you, you've been very articulate uh, about the initial use case here being the, the, the private markets uh, for the obvious reason that they're fragmented and have lots of friction. You've also referred to the fact that public markets have less of that fragmentation, less of that, that friction, even though they're, they're much smaller. Do you envisage this model eventually being applied to the public markets as well? Um, I've, I've spent most of my career actually in uh, public capital markets, building things like effects uh, and fixed income electronic trading systems. Uh, and so one thing I understand is the sheer complexity of uh, the 40 years of legacy infrastructure we have in the public markets. That's not just the technology, but operational, uh, the amount of intermediaries that are involved, et cetera. Uh, and I think over the last five or six years, there are many people have spent a lot of energy uh, working out how to apply these, these new technologies to the public markets, but it's a very heavy lift, right? Uh, and it's very hard when you're trying to work out how do you adapt to all of that legacy. Um, we're focused on the private markets, which are offline. Um, we think it's an environment where you can uh, develop private uh, solutions for digital securities uh, the way they would have been done 40 years ago if the technology was available. Um, you know, that's our focus. I think once uh, these solutions are delivered uh, and are being delivered in terms of taking securities online in the private markets, uh, there's nothing 
in the technology per se that, or in the protocol that stops that being applied to the public markets, albeit from a practical point of view, the, the commercial implementations that are being worked on at the moment are not really geared to things like uh, high frequency. Um, but, but in essence, the technology could be applied there, but we think that the real value and the commercial value uh, for now is in the, in the private markets. Now, talking of, of public and private, does Fin P2P apply to public blockchains or just to private permission blockchains or to both? Okay, so um, you differentiate, say, the protocol from where our focus is and, and how we're leveraging that protocol. Fundamentally, Fin P2P knows about digital securities. Um, there's, there's nothing intrinsic that would say that it's it specifically uh, couldn't work in, say, a public blockchain environment. Um, but with digital securities, we're focused on uh, regulated, developing a, a regulated institutional uh, marketplace. Uh, and those, those institutions we're working with um, for now want to focus that for lots of reasons uh, around uh, permission, call them uh, private blockchain networks. Um, in the future, there's, there's, there's nothing in protocol per se that prevents it being applied to public uh, blockchain networks. In fact, in, in the short term, you know, we, we've already demonstrated that you can use FinP to p to transfer ownership of security, a security in a, a private blockchain network, uh, but do the payment leg, the, D, the instant DVP, using a stable coin that may come from a public blockchain. Uh, so I think those two worlds over time are, are, are getting closer together. Uh, in the short term, the whole initiative is, is very much focused on transfer of securities within a permissioned uh, blockchain environment. Mm -hmm. Now, I brought up that public versus private blockchain thing, partly because one of the major obstacles to institutions getting involved, for example, in cryptocurrency is their concern about uh, joining public blockchains where um, their transactions uh, might be exposed, uh, breaching privacy or confidentiality obligations. I don't know who they're dealing with uh, and, and so on. Um, one of the ideas that's been put forward as a way of making public blockchains more accessible to institutions is by using cryptographic structures like zero knowledge proof to kind of deliver some sort of privacy level. Um, do you have any thoughts on whether there are privacy enabling solutions which would allow institutions to get involved with public blockchains? Do you see anything in development at the moment which would make that possible? Um, I think privacy is is one of a number of um, issues or, or topics that need to be tackled before you get widespread ado institutional adoption in that space. And zero knowledge proofs that you refer to, you know, mathematical structures that enable you to uh, process data whilst it's it's encrypted. Um, they 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 have the, their own hurdles, as I understand it. I'm not a mathematician, but I understand in terms of scalability, performance, these sorts of things, challenges. So I think I can understand why there's a lot of people putting a lot of energy into solving the privacy problem in public blockchains, because it is a problem, right? Public blockchains are only pseudo-anonymous. Um, and I think in parallel to that, there's a lot of other things going on in the legal and regulatory space that are topics to, to, to be tackled there. Um, so who knows? I know these two worlds are, are converging more. I think, you know, um, public blockchains were designed for um, very decentralized uh, cryptocurrencies and and to many ways people are trying to you know, adapt that to work with um, digital securities obviously the massive developments started with ethereum and now around DeFi, etc so these worlds continue to converge but i think there's still quite a few technical problems to be overcome before you can see widespread institutional adoption in that space of course when it happens 
again, there's nothing intrinsically within P2P that stops it um, delivering these, these interoperability capabilities between, say, different public blockchain technologies. Well, talking of, of convergence, obviously there's a convergence between the, the public and the private blockchains, between cryptocurrency and security tokens, digital assets, and, and, and I, 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 hard to disagree with that's what is actually happening, how long it takes is, is, is not clear. But what about converging with the way things are done in the public securities markets already? And the, the reason I'm asking this question is that, as you pointed out, the complexity of what goes on in the public securities markets is always a lot of intermediaries doing lots of different things at the issuance level, at the trading level, uh, the settlement and, and, and custody level, at the asset servicing level. To go back to, to FinP2B, how many of those functions, by which I mean onboarding investors, onboarding issuers, um, admitting trading counterparties, doing the DVP settlement, collecting entitlements and so on, how many of those functions are built into the the FIN P2P protocol now and, and, and how do you expect it to evolve in future? Yeah, okay. So again, I think FIN P2P as a protocol has, has the potential to handle the full life cycle of, of a digital security and, and the associated uh, transaction and, and settlement of those uh, securities. And we, we've already demonstrated uh, when we launched the protocol in, in the public domain last month, um, how digital securities can be issued, uh, transferred between owners, uh, and how different parties can deliver. We demonstrated multiple third-party custody solutions, uh, multiple DVP instant settlement solutions, uh, and recently um, we've uh, developed protocols so it can handle simple indications of interest uh, over that network. Um, ultimately, um, it understands securities, um, so, for example, you can use FinP2P to interconnect different exchanges uh, and you could have uh, full trading of those securities in a secondary market on those exchanges, uh, but extending access through the FinP2P routing network to, for example, investors on, on other venues uh, uh, and exchanges. Uh, so ultimately, it can uh, do a lot. Uh, I think it's, it's fundamentally when you talk about the uh, public capital markets, if you like, it's, it's how do you get from here to there? And it's like, how, how do you migrate any large uh, uh, system or, or technology, you know, a problem you're trying to solve with technology, you can either migrate what you have, or you can start with a new blank sheet of paper. Uh, and I think people are working at that problem from both ends. Uh, we're very much working on the problem of applying FinP2P to the uh, private markets, uh, which is offline. And um, very much we can uh, focus on moving very quickly and designing this the way we think um, a digital securities network should be uh, designed. Um, ultimately, we're bringing uh, issuer and investor closer together, asset and investor closer together. Um, and this ecosystem will have people adding services, call them intermediaries, where they add value, but not because they're there because of inefficiencies in the network. Um, and you can imagine, I think, you know, if, if we were, say, uh, issuing uh, private debt on, on FinP2P and that was working well and we had volumes of issuing private debt and equity. Uh, one could imagine that you might want to just issue um, uh, you know, public debt uh, using that technology as opposed to applying that technology to re-engineer the public capital markets. Um, so uh, you know, all of these problems would be solved in time. I think you know, using a DLT in a substantive way uh, to transform the public capital markets will take many years uh, due to that legacy, due to that complexity. 
Uh, and in the meantime, we think we can uh, move uh, in an agile way at a pace to take private markets online using uh, digital securities. Now, bringing issuer and investor close together sounds like uh, this intermediation. If I was a, an investment bank or a registrar or a stock exchange watching this, I might be a bit concerned that my occupation uh, is at risk. Is that what bringing issuer and investor close together means? Um, I think it means means what it says. You know, you're you're trying to connect assets with with investors. Um, you know, in uh, financial services, uh, will always have uh, you know complexity to it. Um, and there will be many different types of companies adding value uh, to that process of, of bringing assets and investors closer together. Um, I think for um, different parties, they, they need to look at the, the core values that they add in that ecosystem, um, not because they're compensating for inefficiencies, uh, but because there's a true value to be added there. So, uh, you know, we will always uh, need, although the technology may record a, an immutable record of ownership of securities, which makes that very efficient uh, in terms of being able to trace ownership of securities, you're always going to need people to um, manage those, those registries, provide, you know, in the, in the private markets cap table or registry management services, uh, you're going to need ways that you potentially want to lend out those securities in the SEC lending market and so forth. So um, the, the process of disintermediation is one in which uh, we're moving to a more efficient environment. Uh, and I think that, you know, large institutions that carry out intermediary functions, different FMIs, etc., there are roles for them to play in that new world, but they need to look into it in terms of the core value they add um, to uh, assets and investors, and, and not just that they've been making money because they've been compensating for inefficiencies in the public markets. Now, many different companies adding value here. Just to be clear about what the protocol is and isn't doing, are you providing the functionality rather than the functions? In other words, are you providing an infrastructure on which lots of different providers can create, if you like, apps to deliver different types of services, maybe even services we haven't thought of before. Is this protocol infrastructure or is it function? Um, it does provide an environment, uh, an ecosystem where different parties can provide different services. So in that context, it's, it's an infrastructure. Again, it's a, it's a routing protocol that understands uh, what a digital security is. I think one of the most powerful things it does is, um, you know, if you've got uh, digital securities running on a single uh, DLT environment, what, what I might call a little bit of a monolithic uh, marketplace. Um, your, your handling of your security, uh, the payment for that security are, are bound together and anybody wanting to add services needs to comply uh, with the technical uh, complexities of that specific uh, DLT network. Um, what FinP2P uh, does is it interconnects and interconnect different DLT networks at the same time decoupling uh, both the need to understand the specific DLT technology but I'm decoupling the transfer of ownership of uh, the asset from the payment for that asset uh, and from the location of the investor relative to that asset. Uh, and so it does support an ecosystem where, for example, uh, you can have one DLT which is optimized for managing the ownership and transfer of ownership uh, of securities. It may be optimized for performance and also doing other things in, in the secondary markets. Um, but that uh, DLT uh, environment, when somebody transfers the ownership, they can actually do the instant payment 
uh, with a stable coin on a different DLT network or with some other token backed by central bank money or ultimately by a central bank digital currency. At the same time, you could also, the investor investing in that security on that uh, specific DLT marketplace could also choose a digital custody provider, which again is sitting on a different uh, network. So, you know, we demonstrated multiple digital custody providers with their key management uh, solutions. Uh, the, the investor can say, well, I'm, I'm buying the security on this DLT network and I wanted it custody by this provider and settled by this settlement currency. So I think that decoupling and the, the fact that uh, the various parties connect just through that open source specification for the FinPiece API makes it more accessible to all, as opposed to parties having to know about a particular DLT technology or being bound into uh, a specific marketplace. Now, your, your last comments make me think that the people really at risk here are the central securities depositories. If you think about what they do, which is deliver securities against payment in central bank money through this centralized process, you're describing a world in which the, the payment leg, the cash leg, if you like, is decoupled from the delivery of the of the asset. It becomes completely decentralized. So it's a, it's a future in which these centralized utilities are no longer relevant. You're not through this protocol going to recreate the the world of of CSDs with custodian banks as as gatekeepers. Um, the the way I would put it is that with fin, in, in this you know private markets with FinPTP we're not going to recreate uh, CSDs in the current form. Uh, but again, you know there are roles for parties to play in this network. Uh, for example, you know although the blockchain may hold the, the immutable record, you need somebody accountable um, uh, for for uh, overseeing both that record of ownership. You've got all of the administration services associated with it, and again, for instance, how you're managing the uh, lending of those those securities. So uh, maybe I'm being a bit diplomatic, but you know we're not recreating CSDs in the current form. But there are roles to play for people managing registries of ownership of assets and all of the associated administration and other services around those. And I guess carrying the liability for loss of of assets as well. Institutions uh, want somebody responsible for that, right? Yes, indeed. In fact. When you look at this um, and, and you look at the legal and regulatory constructs around FinPTP, it starts to look quite conventional in terms of the environment regulated institutions are used to seeing. Um, so just a very basic example is if you look in the world of cryptocurrencies, they operate almost bearer-like uh, instruments. You know, if, if uh, I lose my private key to my Bitcoin, I've lost my Bitcoin. Uh, that's not the case here, right? We, we are a recording immutable record of ownership of, of securities. Um, but if something went wrong, then, then they are recoverable. Um, they are recoverable in, in, in terms of, you know, if there was default, uh, you know, legal recovery of ownership of assets, so on and so forth. Um, so we are using this technology to update record of ownership of, of digital assets, not to um, move them around like bearer type instruments. Right. So, if your cryptocurrency is stolen, that's that's it. But if your security token is stolen, there are ways of recovering it. Correct. Yeah. Now, where have you got to? You you're, you're at the at the pilot stage. I I understand. Um, when do you expect to go into full production? Yes. Yeah, so um, obviously we we've been moving quickly. We've been hitting all of our objectives and milestones over the last year as as we've developed this. And um, we've proven the technology, we, we launched the technology last month and, and demonstrated all of the things that, that I've talked about 
from tran issuance, transfer of ownership, custody, settlement, payment, etc. Um, we're now starting to work with real-world assets uh, in a in a pilot mode, so demonstrating how real assets can can be issued on the FinP2P network, albeit in the very short term to um, you know, fictitious or investors. Um, but we will then be moved, start to move to full production uh, later this year. Um, one thing that's nice about FinP2P is it doesn't require everything to go live at once. So when we first moved to production, uh, the way that FinP2P works is that uh, the, the, each node on the FinP2P network, FinP2P node, which is not, we're going to deal, but not the same as necessarily a DLT node, but each node on the FinP2P network is, is run by a, a regulated institution. Uh, that regulated institution brings assets and investors to the network. And on the other side of the transaction, you have a another regulated institution bringing in assets and investors to that network. So we can go to production uh, with as few as two or three institutions and then grow the network node by node. So this enables us to go to production quite quickly uh, and then grow it. And then you'll see in the next uh, two, three years, it then growing rapidly in terms of then the proliferation of those nodes. Uh, and as that happens, once you start to get that, that growth, that flywheel, uh, then you get that positive reinforcement of the network effect. You know, more, more institutions bringing assets, attractive high quality assets, attracts investors, which attracts institutions bringing high quality assets. Mm -hmm. Well, as you say, network effects going to be crucial to the to FinP to be really taking off. Uh, what are the obstacles to to network effects kicking in? Um, okay, so. The, there is in all of this, it's been cognizant of what everybody wants, uh, or put it another way, people's commercial interests, right? Um, and uh, I, I think with, with FinP2P, uh, what's attractive is it's providing an ecosystem where many different parties, whether they're buy or sell side institutions, exchanges, other FMIs, fintechs, um, custody providers, transfer agencies, etc., cetera, uh, can all uh, play a role in this network. Uh, in a structure um, that can support whatever commercial models uh, they may have. Uh, and I think that's key. I think, you know, the, the industry has been crying out for this interoperability problem to be solved. You know, everywhere we look, you see press releases, every institution's got a digital securities initiative uh, running. Um, but they're, they're having, you know, they're, 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 they're turning the key on the engine, but maybe the engine isn't running smoothly yet because of this distribution problem. So I think this network effect, I think a lot of people want this to happen. Uh, and I think, you know, we've developed this as an open source API specification uh, that makes it easy for people to participate. And we're sitting in a relatively neutral position. And so I think that can help uh, drive this network effect. And then we'll see what happens. I think you know, parties will be interested uh, potentially in, in creating their own localized marketplaces and not connecting to FinP2P for wider distribution. Uh, but then they may find over time the, the commercial pressures to connect and achieve that wider distribution would, would then draw them in. So I think that, that there's, there's, there's various uh, ways that network effects can be overcome. But I think, you know, we're, we're pulling on the right levers to uh, help drive uh, adoption of that network over time because people want it. It's in everybody's interest for it to happen. I'm I'm, I'm wondering if an, an evolutionary process needs to be at work here as well. And I, I, I what I'm thinking here is that if you look back over the history 
of um, you know standards in the in the blockchain um, universe, you did get this um, multiple multi proliferation. I think was a term you used of standards, and then you had this pretty brutal evolutionary process where people converged on on things like the ERC twenty. Is that experience relevant to what's going to happen to Fin P two B? Are you in some kind of evolutionary race uh, against alternatives, or will different effects apply in your case? Um, yes, I think you know what you see is that if you have a good specification or a good standard that solves a problem, but doesn't only just solve a problem, but uh, pre presents the right commercial environment, the right commercial opportunities, you suddenly find things move very fast. I mean, how fast could we go from uh, Ethereum being developed to security token offerings and, and how fast, you know, one CRC20 was proven to work, did people adopt it? Uh, why did they adopt it? Because it was in everybody's interests who were involved in that to do so. Uh, and there was commercial opportunities there. Um, I think that's, you know, and there will have been many other technical developments, many other specifications that have quickly fallen by the wayside. Uh, so it is evolutionary uh, in, in that sense. Uh, and I think that's the same with, with FinPCP. I think that, you know, we, we um, produced it with an open source specification. Uh, we think it solves not just a problem, but provides the right commercial environment for different parties to contribute to. Uh, and we think that's what, what will drive its success. And the other thing that's very important around this space is the time axis. You know, so often uh, people will, will put themselves in the room to try, try and develop uh, a standard or try and develop perfection, but uh, in the absence of the concept of time. And uh, I think, you know, often you see uh, what are um, these, you know, new um, specifications, new standards uh, take off because they, they work uh, and, and they become like de facto standards, um, for want of a better word. Uh, so, yes, it's evolutionary. We think that FinPCB solves a problem that needs solving for the industry right now, and that will drive its, its adoption and success. The best is the enemy of the good in this field, as in as in others. Yes. Uh, now, I, I don't know the answer that, to this question. I don't know how many blockchain technologies there are out there. We obviously know about, you know, Fabric and Corda. Perhaps you do know how many are out there. But what proportion of the, the universe of blockchain technologies are you aiming to cover? And um, so with the way FinPCP works is that um, if you imagine a FinPCP node, it connects uh, horizontally to, to other nodes to create the network. It has APIs, I say, for want of a better word, facing upwards that connect to applications. Uh, and it has uh, adapters that connect downwards into different blockchain DLT technology. Uh, and so far within the, the, the GDF group that we run, uh, people have developed adapters for uh, Corda, uh, for Ethereum, uh, for Fabric, for Assembly, uh, and for Stellar. And that's been driven by uh, the parties in the group um, wanting to develop those adapters. Um, in principle, there's nothing to stop adapters being built for any type of uh, blockchain technology. It really just comes down to uh, the time, interest, and focus of the companies contributing to, to the FinP2P initiative. Um, but I think you can see the ones we built the adapters for at the moment. I, I, I haven't got the, the data, but I think statistically you know, covers uh, the large majority of, of efforts that are out there. Mm -hmm. Can I ask you uh, uh, now a little bit about how a specification like FinP2P sits relative to 
to standards. Obviously, the, the traditional securities markets operate with a variety of, of structured message formats we call standards built to ISO specifications. I'm thinking here of swift messages, of fixed messages of, of FPML in the in the derivatives markets. And I'm I'm wondering, A, what the difference is between a specification and a standard, and whether as you look forward, whether the work that you're doing is some kind of alternative to standards or a or it is a, a first stage towards the emergence through evolution of standards which for blockchain networks which will look just like swift and fpml and fix um yes specifications yeah. and standards right i mean it, it's kind of symbiotic but um you, you need both the question is how, how do they emerge i mean you you mentioned um fix um off the top of my head my understanding is that the fix protocol was developed by uh, some major uh, institutions in the 90s from memory, and uh, I hope I get this right, probably City, Fidelity and JP Morgan. Uh, now, when they developed that fixed protocol, um, I'm sure they developed it as a specification um, and the industry needed it um, and it became rapidly adopted first in the equities market and in FX and fixed income, etc. And everybody thinks of it today as, uh, as, a, as a standard. So I think standards can emerge from uh, successful uh, specifications um, and in that sense you see specifications becoming de facto standards um, and you see this happening more and more um, in the world uh, we live in the world of uh, the valley uh, um, and the the large tech companies google apple etc and because everybody's working against api specifications uh, to, to to connect and in, intercouple different systems and um, but those specifications the good ones, and if they serve the, the purpose right, will evolve into de facto standards. On the other side, I think there is a role for open standards uh, as well. You know, I mean, with, with we, we have an open source specification for FinP2P API, which uh, we, we hope will come a de facto standard. Um, but, you know, on the payment legs, there are standards for payments and we will adopt uh, standards where they're appropriate. We don't want to reinvent the wheel, uh, but we want to focus on the specification adding value and um, because there the currently isn't that solution for interconnectivity of digital securities across DLT marketplaces. Can I perhaps unfairly uh, ask you to be clear about something I think you just said, which is that API specifications will evolve naturally over time into API standards. Is that what you were saying? Um, the successful ones will, right? I mean, it's, it's down to, to, to adoption. And when you look into those APIs and the detail of fields and attributes, et cetera, they become the standards, right? I mean, you know, on a very simple level, you know, if we develop a, you know, the, if we're talking about passing a country code, we'll look to ISO for the standards for that country code, you know, within that API specification. So a lot of it will already incorporate standards in one form or another. But the, the, the specification of itself, it, when it becomes to a much wider adoption, then people will think of it as a de facto standard. I mean, at the end of the day, FIX is also a protocol. It's not a messaging standard, right? But it's now a protocol standard, uh, for want of a better word. So uh, those uh, specifications that are adopted proliferate and become de facto, people think of as standards, right? I mean, the reason I ask you that, because API standard sounds almost like a, a contradiction in term. You know, this device is meant to enable different systems to communicate effortlessly. But I, I suppose the world you're describing is you're gonna to have to make use of standard components to enable that process to take place. So the distinction between a standard and a specification naturally erodes 
through practice, through actually using it in practical environments. Is that right? I think you've, you, you articulated that very well, right? The boundary between the two are roads. As you say, the essence of APIs is that you don't, some would say you don't need a standard, right? You, you publish your API specification and connect to it. But the very process of many technical teams in different companies connecting to one, one another, they tend to look for the simplest path. And so what you tend to find over time is that different APIs uh, develop standard ways of doing things uh, and you see a convergence, which ultimately looks like a standard. So I think what you, are, you articulated it well is sort of a road between the two, the definition. Can I ask you specifically about ISO 20022? If I was working at Swift, I would see the future of the securities industry lying in widespread adoption of the ISO 20022 standards. You see central banks uh, pushing that, the European Central Bank most obviously. Uh, you see quite a few CSDs committing themselves to, to adopt it, yet you don't see that much actual use of it. And in the securities markets, at least, SWIFT is not forcing ISO 2302 onto the industry because the industry doesn't want to do that. They are doing that on, on the payment side. Has ISO 2802 played any part in your work? Do you think it has anything useful to, to offer to what you're doing now or in the future? Um, yes, the, the, you know, the payment space is moving incredibly fast at the moment and probably faster than, than anything else with what we've seen going on with uh, tokenization around um, payments, what's, what's happening with that potentially disruption of commercial banking model, what we're seeing with stable coins and then onwards with central bank digital currencies. Now, um, ISO 2022, if that, that can add value to that, then it, it would be good for, for, for that to be a, a, a adopted, you know, and I would uh, advocate that. And when we, we uh, connect and talk to people about the payments end of uh, FIM P2P, then ISO 2022 is an, is an excellent place to start. Um, whether it gets um, adopted in practical sense widely depends whether it solves the problems that people are trying to solve uh, in transforming uh, international payments. Uh, if it does, then it will drive adoption. Uh, if it doesn't, then it, it, it may, um, it, you know, form a, uh, a more of a role on the side. I mean, let, let, let's see. It, it's in, in principle, ISO standards are a good thing. Uh, and, and people should adopt them where, where they work, where they, they help solve their problems. Now, one other thing I noticed in, uh, in that you're doing is making use of digital identities to identify the, the investors, the issuers, uh, identify the, the assets. Uh, what role, do, are they just central to achieving the levels of automation you need, or, or is there some richer story uh, somewhere inside here about uh, the value of digital identities as the markets evolve and make it easier for markets to grow? Or is it, is it, I guess my question is, is your focus on digital identities just technical or is there a long-term commercial strategy at work here? Um, I mean, there's a lot of people focused on the digital identity uh, problem at the moment and, and rightly so. I think FinP2P itself doesn't say anything specific about identity other than it supports uh, the concept of, of claims um, uh, against both um, assets and, and investors. And in that sense, it can support different forms and standards of, of digital identity. Um, ultimately, what FinP2P supports is the ability that at a point of a transaction, you can look at the attributes of an asset and the institution that's brought that asset to the network. Um, so for example, 
you know, which jurisdiction is that asset issued out of? Does it have certificates for regulatory exemptions such as Reg D or Reg S exemptions? Uh, and when an asset, when an investor is brought to the network by an institution, uh, you know, that investor will have attributes, you know, uh, do they have certification being accredited? Have they passed an institution's KYC, AML, all of these good things. And then at the point of the transaction, that those two, the attributes of the, the asset and investor are married together to see if that real-time transaction can, can proceed and, and complete. Um, we're not interested in driving the standards around digital identity, but it, it, having a protocol that supports different digital identity standards as they emerge in, in different jurisdictions. Now, just to, to, to come to the, the close of what we're talking about, there's an awful lot of things going on out there in, in the world of digital instruments, let alone the world of digital securities. You've got cryptocurrencies, you've got payment tokens, you've got utility tokens, you've got, uh, as I say, security tokens, and you've got non-fungible tokens. Then you've got, of course, the whole world of, of traditional securities. Are there any limits in your own mind and vision to the instruments which FinP2P can encompass and support? Yes, I mean, I mean, fundamentally, FinP2P has been designed around digital securities, otherwise known as uh, security tokens. Um, it, it's interested in um, being able to uh, distribute and connect investors to digital securities um, sitting on, on various networks. Um, it can, however, as we, we've talked about, the payment leg being decoupled. Um, so FinP2P doesn't mind what that security is, is, is paid for with, right? That, 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 you know, I've talked about the fact that you could pay for that, um, you know, complete payment leg of that transaction with a stable coin or a CBDC. You could pay for that security in, in Bitcoin using, using FinP2P. So in that sense, uh, FinP2P is flexible on the payment leg, but in terms of the security, we've really focused it on um, understanding what a digital security, what a security is more broadly, and how to encapsulate that in, in a digital security. Um, so for the, we, we don't see it being used for NFTs or anything in, in the short term. We, we're really focused on digital securities and then flexible means of paying, paying for those. So it'll encourage convergence, but on a relatively narrow front to start. Yeah. Um, now, I looked at, you're at the proof of concept stage, I looked at the, the 10 firms which were involved. Uh, I saw DTCC was there, I saw R3 was there. I didn't see a lot of other, what might be called established or establishment firms there. Now, any enterprise you can, like any person, you, could, you should judge just as much by their enemies as their friends. Um, who do you think are the enemies of this innovation, whether they're conscious enemies or not? And are those enemies the same organizations as the ones likely to be victims? Of what uh, of developments like this? So the the first thing I would say is that uh, the parties you're aware of are, are the ones that participated in the launch of FinP2P, um, and we're talking about their efforts to technically integrate some of their uh, systems to to FinP2P at the launch. Um, however, the group that um, I have the privilege to lead has over seventy institutions in it. So within that group, we have some of the world's largest um, sell-side, buy-side institution, the world's largest exchanges, clearinghouses, other FMIs, um, SeamTech providers, uh, DLT uh, technology providers, uh, FinTechs, 
and also some leading international law firms. Um, so FinPCP is very much supported by a wider group. Um, we've developed this um, without being very public about it. We're, we're aware that over the last few years, there have been DLT initiatives that start by all the press release and then work out what they're building after that. Uh, we very much with the group token approach that we will build it first. Um, when we did the technical launch, um, we talked about the technical contributors and the parties that have contributed to that. As we get further into the pilot and ultimately production, then we will talk about uh, the institutions that are party to that. Um, so it is a very wide, diverse group. That group has been very active over the last year. And I think that's a testament to the fact that for all of those companies, uh, they see an interest in participating and, and helping make this successful. Uh, and as, as I say, they come from different parts of uh, the financial services uh, industry. I think if they didn't see it in their interest, that group would have quickly depleted, but it, it stayed very cohesive and together. So I think it's in a lot of people's interest to this, this to happen. Um, you know, using the language enemies or whatever, we don't think of it like that, but certainly we think about, you know, different people may have commercial interests down the road. So, you know, I referred to earlier, there may be parties that go, well, that's very interesting, but I'm busy creating my own marketplace with my own solution over here. And I've got clients and that's great. And, and off I go, which is, is, is good. Um, which is fine. I think that um, the thing about FinPCP is it solves a distribution problem that men benefits many parties. Um, some parties will embrace that straight away. Others uh, may be that, uh, you know, they may be two or three years down the road and then they think that FinPCP might add value to them. Um, so uh, I think it's, it, it, it's um, for anybody who's interested in an open industry-wide approach, this is good. Uh, if people are interested in uh, delivering proprietary localized solutions for their own uh, commercial uh, benefit, they, they may see it as less interesting. I'm interested you call it a, a distribution problem. Listening to you, it seems to me it's much more about creating an open marketplace in which network effects drive growth, which drives liquidity, which drives drives more growth, which, which brings me to one last question, which I'd, I'd like to ask you, which is how big do you think this could get? In other words, do you see FinP2P as a, a sort of workaround, technical workaround, if you like, to a, to a practical problem of lack of interoperability between blockchain networks? Or do you see this as the crucial technological fix, which allows what we call security tokens, what you call digital securities to actually take off, not just in the private markets, but into the public markets as well. Which of those is it? How big could this get? Yeah, no, I certainly see it. Um, I think we're at a tipping point for digital securities. Uh, the tipping point we've got to is that you, you've seen it, it worked in, in a retail context, but not in an institutional context. We think that FinP2P solves that problem. It's not a workaround. It's a protocol that understands digital securities and, and always will. Uh, and we think that FinP2P is something that can take digital securities over that tipping point and drive a rapid uh, proliferation uh, network effect around private securities in the short term. Um, there's many other initiatives, again, working in the public capital markets. If FinP2P solves a problem for securities in the private markets better than some of the solutions that are in the public markets, then it could also drive adoption there. 
Um, I think you know it's in, in, in the next few years we, we see it focused very much on the private markets. We think it'd be massive there, uh, and, and who knows where, where it will go from, from there. Well, at Future of Finance, we're definitely going to be watching it very carefully.